Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. It has been a little over a year now since the Army started making some fairly monumental changes to its IT networks, especially the ones that serve troops at the tactical edge. Among the changes they set in motion back then, completely canceling the $6 billion Warfighter Information Network Tactical, or WIN-T, program, which up until that point had been the service's biggest program of record for battlefield communications. Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's Chief Information Officer, described the need for change this way back then. I'm of the opinion that the network we have is not the network we need for the future fight in a contested environment against a near-peer threat. Uh, There are several things that have kind of fed my thinking. I think that we need a network that works for the soldier instead of making the soldier work for the network. A lot has happened since General Crawford made that speech last August. Two months after that, officials announced the creation of Army Futures Command and said that network modernization would be one of the six priorities underpinning that command's activities. To start the show this week, we're going to talk to two of the senior Army leaders who've been working that effort over the past year, mapping out what the future of the Army's network will look like. Major General David Bassett is Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical, and Major General Peter Gallagher is the Director of the Army's Network Cross-Functional Team, one of the six teams that led up to the stand-up of the Army Futures Command. They both spoke to me at this year's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. General Gallagher starts us off with a short description of what's happened over the past year, starting with his appointment as the team lead. We went down and met in the basement of the Pentagon, the under uh, Secretary McCarthy and uh, General McConville, the vice, gave us our marching orders. And then two weeks later, I started building the team. So mid-November of last year, we started uh, building a network cross-functional team and really focused on integrating, collaborating, and pulling everybody together from, from these variety of commands that built up the team, and then working with at the time, Dave's predecessor, uh, Gary Martin at PEOC3T, our counterparts at the Mission Command Center of Excellence uh, at Fort Leavenworth and the Cyber Center of Excellence to start really pulling the, the focused integration of all the key stakeholders to modernize the Army network together with the network CFT serving as, as the catalyst. Those were my marching orders. And so about January, February is when Dave came on board as, as PEOC3T and we've been kind of iterating over time. Several events have happened since the Network CFT stood up last November, uh, and we've been really focused on the tactical network. Uh, Getting a lot of feedback uh, from capabilities from both the special operations community and the joint community of capabilities that's ready now that we could adapt, we could buy, we could get in the hands of our soldiers, see how it fits, see how it scales, see how it improves our ability to fight tonight and fight and win, while we're also trying to leverage the science and technology efforts of the Research and Development Engineering Command and Industry Research and Development to look at what's that next network that's going to give us what we need in the future to counter the emerging threats and capitalize on emerging technology. And that's what we've been focused on for the last 11 months or so since the network CFT stood up in in, in partnership with with our our PEO counterparts. Does that that answer your question? It it does to an extent. You want to describe that partnership a little bit more? How how, how exactly are your two organizations joined? Yeah, I'll let Dave uh, start with that one. So I've done a lot I, I want to follow a little bit on on what uh, General Gallagher said sure. uh, in the last section, though. And, and and although we started with you know 
the network we want is not the network we have, right? And it's got a set of known characteristics. The network we have is not the network we need. It's kind of for a, sure. Yeah. And and there's a set of known characteristics and a desired future state that we're moving to. But I think we've moved long past, moved yeah. sort of admiring the problem. Right. And it's about what are the set of design choices we can make as an army to improve our network over time and and deliver better capability to our users. And so uh, from a from a network perspective today, I think we're, we've come a long way in the last 12 months. We're already beginning to deliver new tactical radios, both a man pack and a leader radio, that offer significantly better capability than we've ever had in the past. Hosting waveforms uh, that, that we were not even considering two years ago. Uh, and then fielding those uh, to the SFABs and now uh, looking at how we can apply that same technology into the, the infantry brigades, striker brigades, and armor brigade combat teams. So new radios, uh, new mission command systems that are going into test in a few weeks, uh, some, uh, an entirely new signal brigade set of equipment with the Expeditionary Signal Battalion Enhanced Pilot, which, which the decision was made for less than a year ago that we're fielding right now. And so this is long past the point of admiring the problem and moving forward with meaningful capability going into the hands of our soldiers uh, really here in the first year of what we're doing. And I think as we look forward into the next year, as we begin to demonstrate uh, this integrated tactical network in uh, the infantry brigades, the striker brigades, and the armor brigades, every one of those brigades gives us the opportunity to introduce new technology, new design options and design choices for how we provide multiple paths for data to flow. We've got new transport capabilities coming on board that will augment the current uh, tactical network transport, whether it's in Tropo, uh, uh, which is a non-line of sight, or, or Trilos, which is a new line of sight system that we've been getting some great results on in test. We think that, that we're beginning to move the network in the direction it needs to head, and we recognize that we want to iterate rather, we want to iterate on, uh, on that network design so that we can make real design choices rather than simply kind of throwing up our arms and saying the network isn't everything we'd like it to be. Uh, we need to move past that and make those design choices and changes and feel that capability. And we're actually getting capability out there now, getting feedback from soldiers and leaders in a variety of environments. Uh, you know, a, a battalion out of the 82nd, and we're going to scale that up to a brigade in the 82nd of uh, integrated tactical network capability. We've also received similar feedback from the 2nd Striker Regiment over in Europe and the 173rd. And as Dave mentioned, the Security Force Assistance Brigades, uh, the one that's in, deployed in Afghanistan today, and then the second SFAB that's going to be fielded here in the months ahead. Uh, some of that capability is here and now. It's its ability that improves drastically improves our fight tonight capability. Uh, but it, we still have work to do for that future network architecture or that network design. And so a lot of our effort over the last uh, 11 months has been unpacking what the science and technology community inside the Army has been doing uh, in Research Development Engineering Command. And, and a subset of that is the Communications Electronics Research and Development Engineering Center, or CERDEC. They're, they're, they're co-located with General Bassett up at Aberdeen, and, and the science and technology community's got a lot of smart engineers uh, working on a lot of initiatives. But what we've, as we took a look at where we're trying to go with the Army Network Modernization Strategy, how it relates to the other modernization priorities, we've made rec serious recommendations of realignment of resourcing within the, that science and technology portfolio to address the threat, the emerging threats, and address emerging capabilities, and try to focus 
their efforts on capabilities that's going to be more promising to transition to either an existing program that General Bassett or his counterpart at PEO, IEWS, General Volmec, are managing, or do we define a new program based on an emerging technology? So you already asked the question about partnership. I'd say that the simplest way to express that is, is you know, in, in this team of teams that we've got, uh, the CFT and General Gallagher bring, you know, 30 years of experience fighting the tactical network. And so we talk about them driving the what and, and the PEO providing the team of experienced uh, acquisition professionals that can drive the how of delivering that network, working with industry, with contracting, with that whole body of knowledge uh, that, that our workforce is, uh, is trained for, and then bringing the best of both talent sets to bear on this problem uh, in a way that, that I think reflects the best, best of both organizations. So a, a lot of experimentation still going on, it sounds like. And, and, and one thing that I've heard various Army leaders say over the past several months to year is that you know we're, we're not, at least in the near term, going to come to a point where there is a program of record that is called the Army Network and every single formation gets fielded the exact same set of gear. That's kind of what we've tried to do in the past, and it, it, it may not, with the way technology emerges now in, in network space, it, it may not be the way of the future. Right? And by the way, the challenge of doing that is that you'd have to be able to write a requirement for the Army Network, and that requirement has got to be informed by technology. Right. And I think a, a better way of approaching it and the way that we're executing this together is not to start with a perfect requirement, but recognize that we're going to start with an intent of where we want to drive it yeah. and use experimentation to inform the art of the possible and, and then deliver the those, those changes to the Army network design over time. Yeah. It's just not affordable to go replace all the network gear in the Army all in one shot with one program. Right. So why would we even start that way? And, and that explanation totally makes sense to me. And I'm, uh, the, the question really is, is there a tension there between between what you just described and the problem that we had 10 years ago where everything was procured with owns and juons and uh, oh, yeah. we had all this non-standard equipment out on the network that could not be integrated. Well, some of it can be integrated and that's the key is what we got to figure out is what, uh, in, in order to prevent ons and juons, we got to have capabilities that we deliver that meet those operational needs. And that's been one of the, the big concerns and one of the glaring uh, findings of the Institute of Defense Analysis study from National Defense Authorization Act of 2016 was that the capabilities as, or the requirements as written and the capabilities as delivered were not meeting the operational needs. So if that's the case, you end up with joint urgent operational needs statements, you end up with operational needs statements from units. In some cases, they'll go use operational maintenance funds to go buy capabilities off the shelf to meet an immediate need. We want to try to figure out how, how do we leverage that and instead of having, and make the requirements document uh, definitive enough to give us, you know, to define the art of the possible, but then be able to iterate and upgrade over time and, and be able to leverage a multitude of options that are interoperable and it might be, uh, you know, maybe not a one-size-fits-all solution for every formation in the Army. Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense? It does. I, I think you described the, the tension pretty accurately and, and, and for a given unit, it's impossible for the institutional army to move fast enough to field everyone all at the same time for every commander that's not looking for kit in two or three years, but during their tenure to change the way they fight. And so I think we can get significantly better at that uh, in terms of, of delivering capability. And that, that, that means, uh, that means looking at the whole process from, from how quickly can we get consensus on and agree upon what we're going to go by to how long it's going to take to go test it to how long it takes to make it operationally supportable and trainable. We got to do all of those processes faster 
because when when units are going off and buying that kit themselves, or when they're going with onses or ju onses, they're not they're they're basically buying gear. They're not delivering enduring capability, mm. and so we have to balance that 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 need for enduring capability with the desire to move very very quickly. And uh, en enduring capability doesn't mean they keep the same box forever mm -hmm. either. It may be instead of sustaining something for, you know, in, into infinity, you might replace it completely as, as technology evolves, right? So having the flexibility of a tactical network transport modernization in, in service line or a signal modernization line, which allows us to modernize and upgrade our network and augment and thicken the network over time uh, as we define these, these network design choices and, and the things that either industry research and development may offer us or our science and technology efforts may offer us, it fits neatly within those lines that exist today. We just got to figure out, it may not be a stand, a, the, today's vendor in the solution may not be what we feel two or three years from now, but we have the program line that, that allows it to happen within, the, a, within our program that's objective. A, that's memory. a great point, Pete. When I say enduring capability, what I'm really talking about is, is, is uh, capabilities that you can train, that you can sustain. Uh, that, that are not just throwaway systems, uh, knowing that you've got to field a very large army with capability. Not everybody has to have the exact same up-to-date equipment, but everybody's going to have something, and we ought to be prepared to sustain it over its life cycle. Mm -hmm. That's Major General David Bassett, the Army's Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical. Also with us for this part of the show is Major General Peter Gallagher, the Director of the Army's Network Cross-Functional Team. We'll come back and talk more about the progress the Army's made over the past year in reimagining its battlefield networks after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And our guests for another segment are Major General David Bassett, the Army's Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical, and Major General Peter Gallagher, the Director of the Army's Network Cross-Functional Team. We're talking about the progress the Army's made over the past year since it first declared that the network it had is not the network it needs. Among the concerns, that the communication capabilities it had in place wouldn't be able to survive a fight against a technically capable adversary. Just before the break, General Bassett told us the network design is still very much much a work in progress, but whatever systems the Army does land on, the same gear won't be fielded to the entire Army, and it certainly won't happen all at once. And so, General Bassett, let me ask you, as the acquirer, this, this iterative approach to the network, how does that change the acquisition techniques that you use? Because it sounds like everything you're talking about probably doesn't fit in a traditional ACAT-1 acquisition program. No, for sure it, it doesn't. And so so we have to look for sort of non-traditional ways, both from an acquisition authority's standpoint as well as from a contracting approach. And so from an acquisition authority standpoint, that means we're going to have to leverage some of the new authorities that have been granted to us by Congress, whether that's under Section 804 uh, or, or just leveraging the existing authorities under uh, engineering changes to exist, existing systems. So where we've got a program that may have already run its course, that, that's got requirements that are still valid, we can uh, introduce new capabilities through engineering changes without having to go through a whole new 5,000 process. Uh, under Section 804, Dr. Jetty and the ASALT has got uh, authority to do programs uh, under that statute that uh, are going to uh, go out in a relatively short period of time with a great deal of flexibility, both in terms of the requirements as well as the documentation that are required. Uh, and so then on the contracting side, 
we've got a couple of things we're doing, I think, that are really going to position us uh, in that area. One is, is making broader use of other transaction agreements, and we've already taken advantage of that with some funds that the CFT has been leveraging at year end, but it also means putting in place uh, sort of larger contracts that allow us to do multiple deliveries under them that give us flexibility going forward. So whether that's the common hardware software contract that was just awarded, CHS5 was just awarded, we have a, a contract called GTAX that we can use fairly broadly to complete delivery orders in a short period of time. And, and even some of the contracting strategies that we've gone to under our radio contracts, both the Leader Radio, uh, which was recently awarded, and the Manpack program, uh, allow us to evolve those radios uh, with available technology over time uh, and, and compete the two vendors under that contract against one another or bring on additional vendors. So we, we're, we're starting with contract vehicles that will allow us to go significantly faster than if we had to start from scratch with a new solicitation. I'm just curious, specifically on the 804 authority, mm -hmm. it seems like people are still kind of getting used to that one. Have you guys made any significant use of it yet? Yeah, so, so we've, we've begun to document Section 804 for a lot of the capabilities that we were providing as part of our Security Force Assistance Brigade uh, network. But and, and internal to the PEO in partnership with the uh, uh, with the CFT, we've laid out a process, uh, sort of a derived process within the PEO that we're going to follow. Uh, just because it's 804 doesn't mean there's no documentation. Doesn't mean that there's no baseline. So we'll manage that with rigor, uh, leveraging the authorities that would be delegated by Dr. Jetty. Right. And we're, we're, we've talked to Dr. Jetty about that. You know, how how do we leverage a model that already you know is proven with the, the rapid equipping force kind of model. Uh, it's a different scale, but it, it, it's, it's kind of all being done through PEO Soldier. We want to use a similar model and, and work between the CFT as we define a statement of intent of something we want to prototype, working with Dave, to, General Bassett's team, to do the procurement, and then we figure out, you know, how much do we need and where do we want it, and then do we make a larger, uh, after experimentation or demonstration, we make a decision of pro further procurement, then he leverages his acquisition authority as delegated by Dr. Jetty to move forward. One of the big advantages to that is it allows you to get started without a, sort of a fully detailed requirement. Because right. if you start with requirements, sometimes you limit yourself in terms of what, a, what technology could deliver, or potentially you'll ask for something that no technology can deliver and you end up in a lengthy development right. which you may not have intended. We want to be able to refine the requirements yep. process through so that we're iterative use, experiment. We'll use experimentation to help refine that requirement so that when we do go to buy it, we've got a lot more confidence in what we're procuring. Quick follow-up on experimentation uh, before I let you guys go. Yeah. Um, so some of that's going to happen at the upcoming NIE, which I think is the last one that's going to happen. What replaces that? Yeah, what are so, going to be the new venues <coughs> so for experimentation? There's a variety of venues. So we've already done four different user assessments over the past year, non-NIE related mm -hmm. user assessments. Uh, we did got some feedback from a JRTC rotation this time last year uh, from 1st to the 508th. Uh, during JRTC. You got some feedback on this integrated tactical network. Uh, we received similar feedback and, and upgraded over time and made some adjustments to what we learned from JRTC and uh, conducted a, a an assessment down at, at Fort AP Hill in Virginia uh, and a similar assessment over in Poland with the 2nd Striker Cavalry Regiment. Um, just recently completed a Sabre Strike exercise over in Europe uh, involving 173rd Airborne the 1st of the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, a battalion out of the 82nd, and then uh, the 2nd Striker Regiment, and received some feedback from multiple units in a variety of scales and configurations, uh, but we're not done yet. I mean, we're, we're learning as we go, and we're getting feedback, and we're making adjustments. And so for, with the feedback from the operational units, the leaders, the soldiers on the ground, 
and, and the commanders <clears throat> is providing the CFT, PEO soldier, who have a big role in this, from you know this dismounted capability, and General Bassett from the network design and where it fits in the tactical network, and also his experience from coming from the ground combat systems, uh, how some of this capability is going to fit on our platforms, fit into the into the network. So we've already had four different sessions to date. Uh, we're going to leverage the network integration evaluation in November, and then we'll have our desire in conjunction with the network integration in November, we're going to do a cyber and electromagnetic activity assessment of, of the new waveforms that we're using how this network, you know, how does it work in a contested environment and uh, gives, you know, provide that feedback. It'll help us make risk decisions and recommendations to senior leaders going forward. It'll also allow us to provide that feedback to the radio vendors so they can make whatever adjustments uh, that may be necessary as we go forward. Um, but what venue uh, do we use leverage? It's, it's going to be a multitude of venues. We're going to leverage lab-based risk reduction exercises and events in the lab, home station training events, getting feedback. We want to go to this DevOps model where it's more iterative and more often, more more frequent touch points and getting feedback as we go. Okay. So, so in the past with NIE, um, we would want to lock down a configuration months in advance so that we could, you know, exhaustively um, measure it for that evaluation. That, that, that notion that we can just sort of stop development and wait six months until we get a full test before we proceed doesn't nest very well with moving at the speed of relevance here. And so, so just because we say that this is the last NIE doesn't mean it's the last time we'll test the network together. As we bring the integrated tactical network into the IBCT, the SBCT, and the ABCT, clearly there's going to be test events associated with that where we, it gives us an opportunity to bring those capabilities together and demonstrate an integrated tactical network uh, at an appropriate scale. But, but we can't afford to just sort of assume that we can just lock that configuration and lose all that development time. I think that would that would cause us to to uh, to move too slow to in order to meet uh, the needs of our operational commanders. And we've, we're working very closely with Joint Modernization Command out of Fort Bliss and with the Army Test and Evaluation Command on how do we do the iterative test testing and assessments, capability and limitation reports, getting that feedback, um, you know, and then as we learn from like a SEMA assessment, then what, what's next? And then how do we uh, gain kind of like constructive credit for developmental and operational tests as we go? So this is, uh, you know, a lot of talk about, hey, we really need to move towards agile acquisition. But it's the whole institution has to be agile. The testing community, the contracting community, the requirements community, all of it, you know, how do we leverage and realign resources? And so going back to, you know, how do we define well enough in what we submit to our, you know, in our transparency to the Hill to be able to be iterative in, in capitalizing on year of execution funding to be able to give the Army the absolute best network we can? Because opportunities pop up that we may not have forecasted when we built the POM or the pro Program Objective Memorandum, so we got to make adjustments in the year of execution. How do we do that in a way that, that makes, common, makes good sense to, to our, our teammates on the Hill? And so we're working through all of that, but making sure, you know, process-wise, a lot, a lot of focus has been on agile acquisition, but it's not just the acquisition aspect of it. It's, it we, we all got to be agile. 
Major General Peter Gallagher is the director of the Army's Network Cross-Functional Team. He's been leading the Army's latest network modernization efforts alongside our other guest, Major General David Bassett, the Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical. They both spoke with me at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the people part of the IT and cyber equation. Major General John Morrison, the commander of the Cyber Center of Excellence, joins us in just a moment on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Survey. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. And we're going to stick with the topic of Army networks this hour and get a little more perspective on how things are changing from a training and organizational perspective. Our next guest is Major General John Morrison, the commander of the Cyber Center of Excellence at Fort Gordon, Georgia. He also talked with me at the annual AOSA conference in Washington. And there is a lot of change happening at Fort Gordon, Georgia right now. Physically, there's a large amount of construction, partly to help prepare the Army to move its cyber command there. But Morrison tells me the more interesting changes are happening inside the schoolhouses. The Army is making a significant investment, but it's really what we're doing with the cyber branch writ large that's the most exciting thing. On 1 October, uh, our electronic warfare professionals actually became a part of the cyber branch. And if you were listening to the opening ceremonies yesterday, you actually heard the Secretary announced that we are going to grow EW and cyber capabilities and put them into our brigade combat teams and at the core level so that we can provide that capability across the depth of the battle space. So talk about what, what in integration and convergence actually means as you bring in those electronic warfare soldiers into your schoolhouse. Are we talking the, the same soldier performs electronic warfare and cyber missions or they are different soldiers integrated into one team? So it's all about integration. It is not about convergence, and it's not about synchronization. It is about integration. So our EWF professionals will get training so that they, inside those brigade combat team formations, can be the cyberspace operational planners for that maneuver commander. They will also be able to deliver RF-enabled, radio frequency-enabled um, cyber effects. And it's important that they're able to do both because if you're buying the multi-domain operations, and that is clearly where the Army is heading, quite frankly, what we're seeing some of our potential adversaries doing, you've got to have that level of integration. And it can't be synchronizing stovepipe capabilities. Everybody's got to be in it so you can have combined arms maneuver in and through cyberspace. So in order to, you know, in order to achieve this growth that the Secretary talked about, you're going to need more bandwidth in the schoolhouses, I assume. What, what challenges are associated with that? I mean, I assume you need a lot more instructors, and, and you're, you're going to need to, in some ways, revise your curriculum to meet these, these, these new threats. Yeah, so it's a three-pronged approach that we're going to have to take with this. First off, right now, the way that we access our electronic warfare um, professionals won't allow us to grow at the speed that we're going to need to grow. Mm -hmm. Currently, they come in at uh, the captain level, maybe first lieutenant promotable, or the buck sergeant, staff sergeant level. So the first thing we're doing is we're moving towards an accession MOS, much like we do with our 17 Charlies on the cyber side. Mm. So we'll be able to recruit young uh, folks straight out of college or off the street, much like we do the rest of the cyber branch. That's first. The second piece is, yes, we are going to have to increase our capacity and throughput through um, the cyber school. 
The good news is on the facility side, we actually have the capacity to do that. So we will have to build, our, build up our base um, on the instructor side. But the Army has a process for that, and we're just working our way through it. The last thing, though, is the most important. It's the curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, we, for years, for all the right reasons, were focused on the counter-IED fight. And so that's what we were training our electronic warfare professionals. This is a different animal that we need to be teaching. And so it really is about how do you apply operational offensive effects in and through cyberspace to include the electromagnetic spectrum, as well as sense the environment, as well as anything that would be counter IED. So it is a different curriculum. We've finished that course, uh, course outline design, and right now we're just getting into Army processes so we can get it approved. I don't want to neglect the signal side, and, and one of the challenges, potential challenges anyway, that comes to mm -hmm. mind there is the Army is right now in the process of architecting a new tactical network, so we don't quite know what this thing is going to look like yet. So how do you train for that? Because presumably this is going to lead to new organizational designs for the Signal Corps, and it's going to require new training, I assume. Yeah, so I'm going to hit the training one first. You know, so there's two components that we are working to build into the Signal School. The first one is everybody needs to be able to operate in an all-internet protocol IP world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the way that we all are now. We weren't trained in that way. We were very, very box-centric. We want to be able to teach basic IP fundamentals so that we can put any box in front of our signal ears. They're going to be able to figure it out. The second piece is we have not been training to fight in a contested and congested environment. I mean, it's been very, very benign training where it's very, very clean environment is we install networks and take them down and jump them and bring them back up. That is not how the next battlefield is going to be. So mm -hmm. we've got to inject that in as well. But, but I'm glad you brought up the um, organizational design component. We're right now running a pilot with one of our expeditionary signal battalions where we have outfitted them with different uh, kit. From the soft community, right? From, from the soft community, potentially right. from the joint communication uh, support element mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some other uh, soft organizations. We're outfitting them with that, but what we're finding is we can do the same missions with different kit that's much more simpler and intuitive to use, and we don't require quite as much manpower per team, which allows us to then go address other operational gaps. So we are actually changing the organizational design. Uh, the, uh, it's the 50th Signal Battalion uh, down at Fort Bragg that is going through this conversion, and their first company will complete fielding this month. And we expect to be putting them on operational missions in November and December. While we have you, I want to ask you quickly about the, the equipping aspect to all of this. Um, I mean, we don't have enough time to do justice to that mm -hmm. component. But um, the Army, especially on the cyber side, I think, right. has really undergone some really significant changes to, to accelerate not just the acquisition process, but the requirements Absolutely. process. Um, tell us a little bit about what that looks like from, from your point of view. So we've operationalized something that, quite frankly, we had the authority to do for many, many years. It's called the IT box. Right. Uh, we got an initial capabilities uh, document approved in December. Uh, there's subcomponents of that where we call out more discrete capabilities that we want. Uh, I'll just give you an example, a deployable DCO kit. Uh, we called that out in a separate document that was approved at a much lower level uh, than traditionally. Usually it's got to go up to the four-star level. This was approved at the one- and two-star level. And then we actually had, and that was approved in February, and we actually had kit 
to prototype inside the Cyber Protection Brigade by April. Next month, we will go through a discrete operational assessment, and then we will make a final decision between our Cyber CG and myself on if that kit is ready for fielding. And so, flash to bang, about 200 days from requirements approval to kit in the hands of our soldiers, prototyping and getting into a DevOps cycle. Uh, that, that's pretty good. And in cyber, I think we can even do better because uh, it is just such a rapidly changing domain. How much better? What's the objective? And as far as you can tell, is this a repeatable process? Oh, it absolutely is a repeatable process. As a matter of fact, you're starting to see it happen. Uh, the network CFT has employed this approach now. Uh, we've employed it for our offensive cyber uh, capabilities as well as for um, another capability that we're building for maneuver commanders called cyber situational understanding. So a maneuver commander in time and space can see what's happening inside the cyber domain. But, but absolutely, I think it's a repeatable process. When, when, when you are moving that fast, does it raise concerns at all about whether you're going to have to enough, whether you're giving yourself enough time to integrate new equipment um, into the network successfully, which is an area I know you've spent a lot of mm -hmm. time on in past jobs. Yeah, so I'm not concerned about move fast as long as we're establishing the right uh, technical network design baseline. Mm -hmm. And we're, as long as we're adjusting from a known point, we're okay. Uh, and, and quite frankly, what we're really doing faster, it's not reckless, we're just getting soldiers involved way, way earlier in the process. So that direct soldier feedback is absolutely priceless to our material developers and our industry partners. So they're hearing it firsthand. Uh, I actually met with a vendor on the floor uh, who we have on contract to start doing some of this uh, DevOps piece. And their first comment to me was, don't put us in a lab, get us into a unit mm -hmm. so we're with soldiers. That's the piece that, that is really being sped up. And that's gonna make, that's gonna allow the Army to make much more informed decisions later on about what is truly a requirement, what is a nice to have, what is good enough, and what do we want to actually field to the force? All right, very good. General Morrison, thanks so much for spending the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. That's Major General John Morrison, the commander of the Army Cyber Center of Excellence, talking with me at the Association of the U.S. Army's annual convention in Washington. One last break, and when we come back, the Defense Department likes what it's been seeing from bug bounties so far. Now it's taking them to the next level. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as we wrap up the hour this week, we'll get an update on an issue we've covered a lot in this time slot over the past two years, the Defense Department's experimentation with bug bounties as a way to test the security of its networks. The Pentagon has just awarded a new round of contracts to get white hat hackers to probe its systems for vulnerabilities. They're worth several times more than the previous round of awards DOD made as part of its Hack the Pentagon initiative in 2016. The awardees are three separate companies, and the department says it will use the contracts for long long-term vulnerability assessments. They're expected to run for up to a year on any given system, and those systems will not just be public-facing websites this time around. Martin Mikos is the CEO of HackerOne, one of the three firms handling the work. He talked with me about the new awards. We've done a lot of work for uh, the DoD from HackerOne, and now we're going to do much, much more. So they opened up a new uh, 
program called the Functional Area 2, where we are now an approved vendor, and the contract size is up to $34 million over three years. From your perspective, what do you think it is that the government has seen, observed from the work that you've done so far, and that other companies, frankly, have done so far, that have made them buy into the idea of, of bounties at a larger scale, or, or vulnerability, vulnerability searchers by white-hat hackers at a larger scale? Well, vulnerability disclosure has been a recommended practice for many, many years by FTC and DOJ and others. And in the spring of 2016, the Pentagon decided to try it out themselves. And they, they had the courage to call it Hack the Pentagon, which was just unheard of, that they went all in trying it. They thought they would get just a few vulnerabilities. We found 138 uh, valid security vulnerabilities for them. So it just showed to them that it probably was the best way to improve the security of their systems. And now we've been doing it for two years with amazing results and they're doing more of it. Aside from the, the, the larger value of the awards, talk about how the actual work is going to be different. What, what sorts of systems, I know we don't have any actual task orders out yet, but what's, what, what, what sorts of systems compared to what, what your folks have been working on before are they going to be going after? So far, we have worked on publicly facing mobile systems, web systems, and so on. This time, we're going deeper into the infrastructure, and we will be touching systems that are not known or used by the public at all. So it will be more secretive, and, and the public will perhaps know less about the work we are doing, but we're going deeper in and fixing more important vulnerabilities. When it comes to the hackers who are going to be doing the work, what extra levels of scrutiny are they going to have to undergo in order to participate? We will test them for whatever we need to test them, but we have done background checks, criminal checks, we know who they are, we have all their payment and taxation information, and, and they are typically limited to a particular country or a group of countries, so we know exactly who they are and they are trusted, vetted hackers of ours. I think another difference in this round of contracts is that there's going to be a little bit more direct contact between the government sponsors of the work and the actual individual hackers, is that right? Yes, we've shown in the past two years with our live hacking events that it's most productive when you have a security team sitting and working side by side with the, those who are hacking because they can exchange best practices and learn from each other. So now we will most likely do much more of that and bring the hackers into one physical location and then have the corresponding security team dealing with them and handling the vulnerabilities in real time as they come in. Contrast that with the process that you've used so far and why you think this one is, is better, more effective, etc. Well, we need both models. We need the broad model where we figure out the best hackers and they, they rise in the ranks and we know who the really, really strong ones are. But then when we bring them together into one group, you sort of get critical mass. They start collaborating with each other, sharing best practices, and suddenly they are even more productive than they would be on their own. And then when they get immediate feedback from the security team, they're just inspired to do even more. Um, speaking of inspiring, in, in your broader business, what, what sort of example do you sense that the government has set in, in a way, jumping into the bug bounty vulnerability disclosure process with both feet? What, what, how has it influenced to the extent it has other of your customers in the corporate space? Well, the method we represent is extremely powerful and productive, but many organizations with sort of a classical approach are worrying about how it will work and they have their own concerns. When they see that the Pentagon is doing it, they realize that there can be nothing wrong with it. 
if the Pentagon needs it, they need it. If the Pentagon has the courage to do it, they should have the courage to do it. If it's useful for the Pentagon, it must be useful for everybody else. So Hack the Pentagon really has opened up the market for all of us in this space. And, and we have now seen an increased rate of growth for our business. That's Martin Mikos, CEO of HackerOne, talking with me about the Defense Department's latest round of contract awards as part of its Hack the Pentagon initiative. Earlier in the hour, we heard from several senior Army officials about what that service has been doing over the past year to modernize its tactical networks and its training for cyber and IT personnel. If you missed any of those discussions, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen to the show on our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DoD on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbid. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 